0: management was so eager to create the appearance of a bona fide social movement in its own right um, that somehow this was to be an antidote to the UAW. So they would um, choreograph, for example, massive rallies in the arena in downtown front, these huge rallies. And managers in the GM plants would force their workers to go and attend these rallies.
1: The Flint sit-down strike that began on December 30th, 1936, is usually viewed as a pivotal success for the United Auto Workers, which had been founded just the previous year. The successful 44-day strike against the largest company in the world sparked a massive wave of organizing and strikes and the UAW grew from 30,000 members to half a million in just a year. But that success was far from assured at the time of the Flint sit-down strike. Management fought the union bitterly, and then, as now, there were workers who didn't support the union. In No Labor Dictators for Us Anti-Union Workers During the Flint Sit-Down Strikes, a forthcoming article in the Michigan Historical Review, Dr. Gregory Wood takes a closer look at the influence of anti-union workers and the General Motors-supported Flint Alliance, both during and after the strike. Wood is an associate professor and chair of the History Department at Frostburg State University. He discussed his research on Tales from the Ruther Library, the excellent labor history podcast from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University. Also today, two from Labor History in two.
2: On this day, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. But did you know that the Emancipation Proclamation did not actually free enslaved people in the U.S.? The year was 1966. That was the day 33,000 transit workers of TWU Local 100 waged a 13-day strike in New York City.
1: I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today.
2: Smith, and this is labor history in 2. This date in 1863 is one of the most often misunderstood days in American history. On this day, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. But did you know that the Emancipation Proclamation did not actually free enslaved people in the US? Instead, the proclamation only freed those enslaved people located in rebelling states of the South. Since Lincoln's Union forces did not yet control those areas, the proclamation could not immediately end slavery for anyone. One of the goals of the proclamation was to encourage black Southerners to join the Union forces. Lincoln stated, And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed services of the United States, to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sort in said service. By the end of the war nearly two hundred thousand black men fought with the union what the emancipation proclamation did accomplish was make it explicit that ending slavery was an aim of the civil war it moved the nation one step closer to a system based on free labor it was an important step in the long and unfinished project of equality in the united states writing about the impact of lincoln's address historian john hope franklin declared and one can only hope that sooner rather than later We can all find the courage to live under the spirit of the Emancipation Proclamation and under the laws that flowed from its inspiration. I'm Rick Smith, and this has been Labor History in Two. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two.
3: Happy holiday greetings from Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the merry old town of Detroit. I am Dan Galadner, your host, and as always, giving me the stare down is Troy Eller-English. How are you doing, Troy? I'm okay. <laughs> you are? Sure. Okay, good. You ready for the holiday? Um, No. <laughs> oh, Troy, <laughs> it's it's the time of festivitis. I I have a...
4: A few more purchases to make.
3: Yeah, I have a few From
4: more. local purveyors. Always. But if, you, uh, if you're running late and you need a gift for someone, yes. you can get one of those Trump digital trading cards. What? <laughs> I have not heard of these. Oh, Dan. You haven't heard? Oh, the Trump
3: digital trading?
4: They're NFTs? No. Oh. I know what we're doing after we record this. <laughs> <laughs> oh. They launched yesterday and it was touted as a major announcement. Uh-huh. And as stupid as everyone thought it was going to be, it was so much more stupid. Oh, lovely.
3: I can't <laughs> wait to see this. Oh, you made my you made my day now. Happy Hanukkah! Happy Hanukkah! <laughs> you know, in, in December we love celebrating Christmas, Hanukkah, Bo Day, Day, Kwanzaa, and many other things, including Trump digital cards, I guess. <laughs> but we also try to remember that in Michigan and Flint, Michigan, December 30th, 1936, there was, of course, a very young UAW called a sit called a sit-down strike against GM, the largest company in the world. Resulting, after 44 days, GM capitulating and agreeing to bargain a contract with the UAW, and, well, the rest is history, isn't it? Um, On the outside, looking in, it seemed that all the workers were for the sit-down and were happy with the end result of getting raises to the wages, establishing a grievance system— And word spread that UAW went from basically 30,000 members to 500,000 in one year. A new era of labor management relations had started the GM sit-down strike is considered one of the biggest labor events in U.S. history. But you know what? Not everyone was happy about a union coming into the plants. And yes, of course, GM did not like it at all. But some workers, they didn't want it as well. I mean, we tend to forget that there is always an opposition group of workers that do not need a union, don't see a union, will fight against it. And that is what this podcast is about. We talked to historian Gregory Wood about his paper, No Labor Dictators for Us, Anti-Union Workers During the Flint Sit-Down Strikes, which will be published in the Michigan Historical Review in 2023. Greg Wood completed an MA at Wayne State University and earned his PhD in U.S. History from the University of Pittsburgh, he has been a faculty member in the Department of History at Frostburg State for 14 years and is currently the chair of that department. And when he's not writing a paper on labor history or presenting a paper somewhere, you can find him in Camden Yards rooting on for the O's or jamming on his base in some club somewhere. His article looks at the other side, and that is of the anti-union sentiment by some workers in GM, and with his anti-union viewpoint created a ripple effect against the CIO. Left-leaning labor militancy, opposition to the New Deal, and kind of a rise to conservatism. Even though GM could not stop the union movement in its factories, there were some ways that GM did curb some of this liberal union asks and force compromise in the end result. And you will have to listen to the podcast to find out. Now, this article is a must-read to gain a full picture of what was happening then, what happened later, and with those counter-voices of the New Deal, and what happened to unions, and the effects that continue against unions even today. So enjoy a wonderful podcast while you sip your eggnog. Have a great holiday, everyone. See you next year. Say Happy New Year, Troy.
4: Happy New Year, Troy.
3: Greg, thanks for being on Tales from the Roof of the Library. Um, really enjoyed reading your paper. It was excellent. Thanks for taking the time.
0: Thank you for having me.
3: Yeah. Um, as I said, your paper's excellent because it takes a longer look at something that we kind of forget. And that not everyone was really on board with the UAW coming in and organizing the workers at, in Flint. Um, Sidney Fine said to take a quick look at, you know, take a look at it, but it was kind of kind a of weak, weak support way if he was doing it. So why did you decide to really take a longer look at these anti-union forces?
0: I was really interested for a long time um, in the presence of those anti-union organizations amid the Flint sit-downs. And on one level, certainly they were a pitiful company contrivance um, that spoke to GM's desperation to somehow push back against this union upsurge in its factories. Um, Sidney Fine, you know, certainly in his still after all these years, very authoritative um, history of the Flint sit-downs, um, you know, he viewed those organizations like the Flint Alliance, as it was called really as sort of awkward carnival sideshows to that upsurge in labor militancy in the GM plants. And I wanted to go back and to explore, um, kind of to revisit and to reinterpret the role of those organizations during the sit-down. And what I started to discover, um, going back to revisit in fact, many of the old records and collections that um, Sidney Fine had used in his book, that there was a a much more complicated story there as far as um, anti-union workers during the Flint sit-down strikes um, and what was their role in in that crisis. And on one hand, certainly there's a a powerful argument to be made about the Flint Alliance and other loyalty organizations as being company inventions to, to desperately push back against the UAW. But there was also a surprising amount of bona fide um, anti-union worker opposition to the sit-downs and to the UAW. So those figures are also part of this story.
3: So, so you say that um, that the Flint Alliance was, in essence, a um, fueled by the GM and the support of it but they gave it an attitude that it was more of a grassroots thing. What kind of um, things that GM do to propel the Flint Alliance and give them support um, to make their case that not everybody was on board
0: with the UAW? The, the, The exciting thing I thought studying the Flint Alliance was to see how General Motors management was so eager to create the appearance of a bona fide social movement in its own right. uh, That somehow this was to be an antidote to the UAW, that there were these anti-union workers who were, in their understanding, very enthusiastic about pushing back against the UAW and rejecting the sit-downers and supporting the company's take um, on the strikes. Um, they, They really wanted to create the appearance of this social movement. So they would um, choreograph, for example, massive rallies in the the downtown um, IMA um, um, arena in downtown Flint, these huge rallies. Mm -hmm. And managers in the GM plants would force their workers to go and attend these rallies, um, for example. So they really worked hard to... In various ways to cajole or even coerce uh, workers to attend these rallies and events. Um, They would push workers to um, sign their names to petitions, um, to to sign form letters that were sent to the the White House to condemn President Roosevelt for supporting um, labor rights to the extent the Democrats had at the time. Um, So so GM would really um, they would both push and encourage and try to incentivize uh, workers to join the, the Flint Alliance or to attend Alliance events.
3: Hmm. Hmm. And, and this wasn't just in Flint, as your
0: paper alludes to it. this was around the whole country, right? Uh, yes, there, there are these loyalty committees um, and various efforts occurring throughout the GM system. Um, In my research, what I find is the further we get away from Flint, the more genuine um, anti-union worker opposition to the sit-downs becomes. Hmm. Uh, So, for instance, um, I discovered uh, quite an interesting series of events at the Fisher Body Plant in Baltimore, um, where the management there sort of went allay to these anti-union workers who were roughing up and chasing out of the factory. Um, people who supported the, the sit-downs or had tried to go on a, a sit-down strike of their own. They were organizing uh, marches on uh, the offices of the Maryland senators um, to, to demand that they do something um, about the um, sit-down crisis unfolding um, in the GM factories. Um, they tried to get to Francis Perkins's office. Um, or um, very aggressive loyalty committees in Bay City and Saginaw. Um, Henry Krause collected a lot of um, reports about um, what felt like to him and to others is sort of um, uh, Black Legion-esque repression going on uh, among workers um, in, in Bay City and Saginaw. So within Flint, the UAW and the sit downers probably certainly enjoyed the greatest support, but getting toward Detroit Bay city and then further beyond to um, GM plants in Indiana and, and Maryland, um, Terrytown, New York. Um, the support for the strike and for the UAW is um, far more touch and go. Interesting. That's interesting. Now, it seems
3: like what you're saying is like GM not only uh, recruited, well, forced uh, employers, employees to uh, join with the Flint Alliance, as well as other uh, loyal um, groups. Um, they obviously had control of the press. Um, I'm sure they had tons of publicity going on. Like, so the question is, they seem to be winning the PR game, but how did the, why did the UAW win in this, in
0: this major battle?
3: Um,
0: the, the question of the media in this war of ideas, um, that's a big part of the Flint sit-down saga. Um, on one hand, the the company and those that support the company um, are really pushing aggressively um, for, for this. They're trying to reaffirm, you know, free market economics and employer control of the workplace and, and to push back against the various ways that labor has been empowered by the, the National Labor Relations Act and the National Labor Relations Board. Um, and then on one, the other hand, the uh, those who support the UAW um, are are trying to push for this kind of um, the proceduralism, the contractualism uh, that would go with a a union contract and union representation. Um, And GM's push against the union very much rested upon their ability to use the media to put their version of events out there. Uh, Everything from Guiding coverage in the Flint Journal newspaper, very close to home, mm-hmm. um, to getting on the radio and having conversations about the majority of our workers want work. They don't want a union. Right. Um, GM taking out full page ads everywhere from Detroit to Indianapolis to Terrytown, New York, mm-hmm. um, affirming that the company and its take on the strike represents how the majority of our workers feel. Um, that was a, a big source of frustration for Henry Krauss in particular, um, who's almost single-handedly trying to push back against the, the power of GM's megaphone uh, in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's working on doing things like delivering UAW newspapers door to door. He's trying to counter as forcefully and in as detailed a way as possible what are GM's points. Um, one of the things I enjoyed reading in the Krauss papers was uh, Henry Krauss would collect uh, Flint Alliance publications and various GM propaganda. And the, the white spaces of these papers are filled with his notes about how he's going to formulate a response to it um, and his very personal frustration and complaints in the white spaces about the, 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 the falsehoods that GM was spreading. Um, so certainly, that war of ideas but between the UAW and their supporters on one hand and the the company and those that sympathize with the company's view on things is is very much a part of this story,
3: yeah, that's that's what I gathered. I mean, it was this constant barrage of we are right, you are wrong on both sides. and Henry Krauss. You're right. He was a one-man show of trying to combat one of the, the largest company in the world with their PR machine. Um, but as we all know, the, uh, it, the UAW is successful after 44 days. Now, um, what happened afterwards? You have these anti-union forces in the plants now, and it's the union shop. Uh, what kind of environment was it for the workers in there? How did UAW, now the union representing the workers, respond to this?
0: That's, that's an incredibly fascinating part of the story that I loved getting into is, so when, when the strike was done, how does the dust settle? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, very famously, labor historians admire, you know, that, the arrival of that contract, which opened up the door, that beachhead, it opened up the door to the growth of the United Automobile Workers and the CIO and the auto industry. But the position the union faces after the strike is far more perilous. Um, Nothing is by no means set in stone at that time. And the anti-union workers, for example, who had been part of groups like the Flint Alliance, they are still there on the shop floor and they are still deeply ambivalent to the union and the organization of of the GM system. Um, the, un- the union supporters, they feel like it's inevitable that these anti-union workers and their organizations are going to fade into oblivion very quickly. Yeah. Um, there was even, um, I found a photo um, that was only published in one newspaper I saw, where um, to symbolize the end of the strike, the workers went and had a, quote, funeral for their effigy of George Boyce. Uh, who, who was the, um, the, the leader of the Flint Alliance organization. But GM is still promoting um, opposition to the UAW within the plants, creating organizations that were meant to be a possible choice for workers should they decide to reject the UAW during that period where um, the company promised not to interrupt UAW organizing but the company itself is trying to organize um, these kind of incorporated organizations that would be anti-union organizations for workers. So in the the months that followed, February of 1937 and the end of the sit-down, there's a, a great deal of jockeying going on between the UAW and the company, which is trying to find a way to constrain to the fullest extent possible Um, the growth of the union Um, of course that doesn't work but um that spring and summer of 37 you see the the anti-union efforts of the company have not stopped Hmm.
3: Hmm. and that's that's the that's that's what was fascinating about your paper i mean it opened up the reality of what goes on in the shop floor before during and after a union drive and i think um your, your paper will help educate a lot of people working on places like an Amazon. You know? It's not that you know, it's not cut dry, there's still gonna be battles. All right, best, best part of our, our show is always asking what kind of collections did you use at the Ruther Library and what other archives did you use to uh, help you get this paper going? Obviously you used Henry Krauss. Can you tell
0: us also who is Henry Krauss? Um, Henry Krauss um, was uh, one of the key organizers in Flint. Uh, for the UAW. And given his education, um, he he was college educated. um, He was a a man of letters in his own right. Um, He emerges uh, during the sit-downs as the editor-in-chief of the um, uh, Flint Auto Worker newspaper. Mm -hmm. Um, And he also, um, in, in addition to trying to craft the union position for the public via its periodical. He's also um, quietly become one of the key almost archivists of the uh, Flint sit-down strike. I found his collection to be the richest as far as he's assiduously collecting everything from what were uh, Flint alliance periodicals and publications to receiving um, notes and letters from uh, workers, often clandestinely, who were at the Flint Alliance rallies or are being muscled by their bosses in the auto plants Mm. to attend rallies. Um, He he collected cartoons and poems and song lyrics that workers were sending to him for the the journal, excuse me, for the newspaper. Um, so he he built up an impressive collection of documents surrounding the Flint sit-down strike crisis, and in particular, he was the most assiduous chronicler of the Flint Alliance and those anti-union organizations. Um, he, he clearly recognized that that was that they were certainly a significant player in the strike drama that was unfolding in Flint, um, and he. Um, was He took great pains to collect everything that they would produce or publish because ultimately it fell to him, certainly, to formulate the counterattack in terms of the war of ideas uh, against those organizations.
3: Um, he's the archivist's dream because uh, we wouldn't have a collection and you wouldn't be using that collection. That's, that's what we always look forward to. Did you use any other archives um, besides the Ruther Library?
0: Um, let's see. The, the Ruther was certainly huge. The, the, the Kraus collection, the, the oral history collections, um, the editions of the Flint Auto Worker, but I also um, spent a, a great deal of time uh, in the Wayne State Libraries looking at newspapers, the Detroit newspapers on microfilm. Um, and I also spent um, time up at the University of Michigan Flint looking at um, a, a long run of the Flint Journal newspaper on their microfilm collection um also a lot of digital newspaper collections things that i could access access excuse me from my own campus um and um pursuing everything and everything anything and everything that i could find that was published about the flint sit down strike that i could use
3: right right greg thanks again for taking the time to be with us i appreciate talking with you um i've learned a lot
0: yep thanks a lot man all right thank you
4: TALES FROM THE RUTHER LIBRARY IS A PRODUCTION OF THE WALTER P. RUTHER LIBRARY AND ARCHIVES OF LABOR AND URBAN AFFAIRS AT WAYNE STATE UNIVERSITY, COMING TO YOU FROM THE HEART OF THE CULTURAL CENTER OF DETROIT, MICHIGAN. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan.
3: Goodbye, Dan.
2: On this day in labor history, the year was 1966. That was the day 33,000 transit workers of TWU Local 100 waged a 13-day strike in New York City. They shut down 135 miles of subway, 2,200 buses, and affected over 6 million daily riders. Wages and working conditions had been sliding for years at the MTA. By 1965, transit workers made far less than other municipal employees, speed up and expand job duties increased as the authority eliminated thousands of positions. Rank and file members held the union partially responsible. They demanded a contract that met their needs and would walk out if necessary. TWU President Mike Quill broke off negotiations on New Year's Eve. Moments later he was televised ripping up a temporary injunction barring the strike. The union demanded contract changes including a 32 hour four day work week, a 30% wage increase and better pension and vacation terms. Quill and eight other TWU leaders were jailed for defiance of the injunction. Having been found guilty of contempt, Quill responded, the judge can drop dead in his black robes. Politicians and even the president lambasted the intolerable conditions the strike had created. Editorials in the New York Times lamented that, not since the draft riots of the Civil War has the normal course of life in this city been more profoundly altered for so many days. In the face of this, the transit workers stood tough and won big. Their victory included a 15% wage increase, improved pension benefits and $2 million towards improved working conditions. The strike also resulted in the overhaul of laws governing public sector workers, granting them the right to organize and bargain collectively, thus leveling the playing field for all public employees. Like what you hear? Check out more at (laughs) laborhistoryin2.com.
1: That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Thanks this week to Tales from the Ruther Library, the excellent labor history podcast from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music was the Manhattan Chorus singing Morris Sugar's Sit Down, recorded in April 1937, shortly after the successful Flint sit-down strike. Labor History Today is produced by Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time.